Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Unmute yourself. There you go. Perfect, my friend. Good evening, Mr. Real. I am doing great. Uh, folks, hold the applause. It's going to be kind of a uh, dark and dreary night, but I think we'll cover this story pretty well. Um, before you get into a few things, and we want to jump right into it, if you don't mind, you guys. And uh, I want to give at least a little warning at the front. Tonight's episode, we'll be discussing uh, harm to children. Uh, this episode will contain graphic details of injuries and a discussion around child abuse. If you sense that now is not an appropriate time to sit with that material, we would suggest you skip this episode, at least for now, and go find yourself a space that will be healthier to your well-being. And with that, uh, why don't you share a few thoughts as well before we jump into this thing? All right. Well, what we're going to be talking about tonight, tonight is your show officially, just so the audience knows this. But we both agreed that a late-breaking story should be covered on Mormonism Live. And what the story has to do with is Bonnie Cordon's grandson, Derek, who passed away tragically back in December of 2016. This story had remained unknown as far as I know until recently when the church as part of their hashtag hear him campaign. They put up little video clips of different church leaders. They've already done the top 15 guys and they're getting around to the gals, I guess, but Bonnie Cordon did one of these. She was a, uh, I don't know if she is still, but president of the Young Women's Association. Yeah, Young and Women's President. Yes. Is she still? Looks uh, like she's it still is. listed on the, yeah, since okay. 2018. And in this video, which I know you're going to play, she references the death of her grandson, Derek, who was two years old at the time back in 2016. And she makes mention of the fact that he stopped breathing. And someone went on the internet and found a four page document, which was completed by, I think the Florida or at least Orange County, uh, child fatality prevention specialist and also family safety program manager in Florida. The, the four page document is called a child fatality summary. It's been making the rounds on the internet. This is what we have and what we're going to go over tonight and talk about and before we do that, I had wanted to say a couple of things before we get going by way of caveats and introduction. Is that okay, Bill? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. So let me make sure I cover this. The first thing is that this report does not appear to be an original report done by anyone. It was done by what I think is probably Child Protective Services, what I would call it, in Florida. And what they're referencing apparently are police reports and an autopsy report. So it doesn't look like they did any investigation of their own, but they are reporting the findings of other people who did their investigation. So it's important to realize that what we're reading is filtered through a third party. The individual 
who wrote up this child fatality summary. Now, some of the, uh, like the conclusion of the autopsy appears to be quoted verbatim in this four page report, but nevertheless, it's important to realize that what we're getting is somewhat removed from the original documents. I do wanna add that I have made a request under the Freedom of Information Act to the Orange County Sheriff's Office to get any and all investigative reports in this matter that was done as part of the investigation of the death of Derek Cordon back in 2016. I'm waiting to hear back from them. When I do, I expect we may be doing a follow-up of some sort because hopefully there will be more information there and it'll be a little bit more direct information as to what's going on because there are a number of questions that we still have about this. Um, another thing is that there is immediately a contradiction in this report. And this is the kind of thing that happens and why it is that we should approach such reports cautiously. For instance, I don't know if you have the first page of that there, Bill. Oh, there it is. In the upper right hand corner, you'll see date of, uh, date of death is 12-10-2016, which is consistent with other statements in the report, but totally contradicts the first line of the report, which says circumstances surrounding death on December 12, 2016. The two-year-old child passed away after suffering apparent head trauma on December 9th, 2016. So those are in conflict. These are the kinds of things that we see from time to time, which may just be typos. But yet we have to be cautious when we're looking at this information precisely because of this kind of thing, which could be more than just a typo. Okay, so having said that much, I also want to emphasize that we are not making any accusations at all here tonight. We are not here to accuse anyone of wrongdoing. What we are here to do is to discuss as well and intelligently as we are able with uh, Bill's life experience and Maven's life experience and my career experience of 32 years being an attorney in the criminal field and having dealt with this kind of thing and these kind of reports on occasion throughout that 32 years. So we're not making any accusations here tonight. We're just here discussing the report Number three, I don't think I have to say this, but I have to say this. Nobody listening to this podcast should ever take it upon themselves to try to retaliate or do anything as a result of this podcast that might bring harm or harassment or any kind of negative um, effect upon anybody as a result of this podcast. It may be frustrating to listen to, and yet I think that the listeners to this show are intelligent enough that I don't have to make that statement, but it's gonna go up on YouTube. And so who knows who's gonna see it? But if anybody did anything of any kind of retaliatory nature as a result of this, I would have to publicly disown them and call them out and excommunicate them, I guess, from the Mormonism Live Church. Um, I don't know how I can say it any more strongly. Do you want to say anything about that, Bill? It, just that as I've gone through all this, we will get to it. This is, there's a lot of anomalies. There's a lot of facts that don't seem to mesh with the results of, of Derek Cordon and his, his death. But at the same time, it's certainly up in the air exactly what happened. And uh, like you, I would be uh, horrified to find out that somebody chose to decide for themselves what caused the end result and took it into their own hands, that would be completely inappropriate. Right. And I would say even more than inappropriate, I would say it would be wrong. Yeah. And don't do it. Yeah. 
Okay. So the fa final thing I want to say uh, to get out of the way at the outset is that Bill and I talked about whether we should do this show tonight. He had something else planned completely that would have to do with church history. And I think Joseph Smith's being tarred and feathered. Mm -hmm. But then this story started showing up and this four page document started showing up. And Bill and I, in consultation together, decided we're going to go with this story tonight because it is immediate. It's ongoing. It's something that we felt we needed to address. And we talked about the fact that there could and may be people who will think that what we're doing here is trying to take advantage of a sensational type of story uh, in order to what get ratings. I don't know, maybe yeah. uh, for whatever reason. But we talked about that and then we decided. But, you know, if we don't cover this, if we don't talk about it, then are we not, in a sense, being an accomplice of some sort and keeping it hidden. And ultimately we have the question, which I know you're going to get to at the end is who in this entire mess is going to speak for two year old Derek? Yeah. Because it doesn't seem like anybody else is up to now. Yeah. And I'll add that you, as you well know, as Maven well knows, we came, uh, we became aware of another story a few months ago that was, if, if I may dare say more sensational in terms of dealing with Mormonism, um, that would have been really easy to cover. And we've never, never done that. It still kind of sits there because it felt unethical to do so. And so we just put it uh, on a shelf, uh, the proverbial shelf, right? Put it on a shelf and just said this, we're probably never going to be able to get to this right? Uh, because it didn't feel appropriate to cover it. Uh, this one feels different. And so I know it teeters a little bit on the edge, I think, for some folks. Um, I, I want you to know, at least from my point of view, and having talked to Maven, having talked to RFM over the last week, um, I feel like our motives are genuine in trying to cover this for the right reasons and to um, this story shouldn't go away and be swept under a rug. Right. And this is why I'm wearing a tie and a uh, coat jacket tonight, because this is not a night or a discussion for Marvel t-shirts. This is serious stuff. And we want to treat it with the seriousness that it deserves. Yeah. Okay. Are you ready to rock and roll? Yes, sir. All right. So let's do it. Um, I'm going to put up on uh, the screen the, the thing I just had. We just want to note here at the very beginning, let me grab um, that one. All right. So the Young Women's General Presidency, we mentioned it in the very beginning, but just to note that Bonnie Cordon is the uh, Young Women's President. She was named Young Women General President on March 31st of 2018. We've covered her before. Uh, I'll put this up and uh, play this little soundbite. But if you guys remember Elder Holland making a joke about the Cordon family not having any wealth, and in reality, they are very wealthy. Talk about here in the time that we have. Sister Corden, is this is now this is kind of a cultural question. We're we're talking to Western Europe, Eastern Europe, UK, Africa. We're, we're talking to a lot of people. Well, we're talking to more than that by the time that's just in English. Uh, and then we translate into so many languages. So this is kind of a cultural question, but I think it's the one we ought to talk about. A lot of questions about marriage, a lot of questions about dating. Is it a bad idea to get married before you have a good amount of savings in the bank? You and Derek didn't have any money in the bank. <laughs> you we don't have any money now. We don't have any money now. <laughs> so you'll you'll remember that little soundbite. Um, so this is the same Bonnie Cordon that we're talking about today. And so from there, 
Uh, in fact, Maven, you've got, I think, a little bit better uh, graphic maybe in sound audio. So I'll let you put yours up if you want to put this first one up. Uh, I love we'll that you're both kind of assuming nobility of all people. You know, everyone, we never know what circumstances people are coming from. Um, I know I've, you know, been in a meeting at times and they'll be discussing things and you think, as you prayerfully listen, you think, where are they coming from? Because it's a totally different thought than maybe how we're thinking or how we perceive it should be right. Um, let me just give you a story that may or may not illustrate some of the principles here that we're talking about. Um, and it's kind of a story of just misunderstanding, um, maybe a little bit of suspicion that someone was trying to get away with something, or, um, but it ended with a lot of compassion and love. In December, about to, uh, December 2016, my um, son and his dear wife um, were checking into the airport in Florida, and they had tragically um, and unexpectedly lost their two-and-a-half-year-old on a vacation. And as they were checking in, they had a lot of luggage, and they had this little car seat. And the agent looked at him and said, you have too much luggage here, we're going to have to charge you. My daughter-in-law, of course, with a very heavy heart and not quite, had a lot of emotion going on. She said, um, you know, they didn't charge us for the car seat when we came out. And the lady, kind of suspicious, said, where's the child? And Hannah could have been offended, but she chose to realize that this agent had no idea of the tragedy that went on in her life. So she, with a lot of love and a little bit of tears, said, we came with our little boy and he unexpectedly passed away, so we're bringing his car seat home. Well, of course, the agent, having a bigger expanded vision of what the situation was, she just loved her. She cried. Hannah cried. My son cried. They checked in the car seat. There was no extra charge. But I think if we realize that as we're sitting in councils and we're working with people, in, especially in the church, we have a wonderful opportunity to do something that I think is remarkable, and that's sustain. Yeah. <clears throat> so... Again, I, won't, I don't want to talk a lot about that. Just to note, folks, if you just think about the way she framed that story, we'll play it again at the end once we understand all the data. Um, there are parts of that story that just seem really strange to me. Um, Maven, let's put up the other one, um, and then we'll play the Hear Him, which is the recent exposure of this. Life sent me a hurricane of sorrow in December of 2016. We took our family on a trip of a lifetime, a week at Disney. Our oldest grandchild, Derek, was two and a half, and I was so excited, and he was so excited to discover the magic. For the very first day, everything amazed him. He held my hand, and together we rode as, as many rides as we could, falling into bed each night, exhausted and happy. In the middle of the fourth night, little Derek stopped breathing, and his parents rushed him to the hospital. I stayed with the family at the hotel, and immediately went to my knees in prayer. 
With a measure of confidence, I asked Heavenly Father to bless little Derek, that he would feel good enough to join us that day for our planned activities. As I was praying, the Spirit gently but unmistakably impressed on my mind, little Derek has returned home to heaven. Wait, what? The answer was so far from my thoughts, and yet I knew it was true. Despite my reeling shock, there was an instant peace from God which passeth all understanding. In my heart and in my mind, I knew then little Derek had passed away. Derek was in a children's hospital for three days on life support. I longed for my little Derek, but as I prayed, I continued to feel comfort and consolation from a loving Heavenly Father. Perfect. And then let's play the most recent one with the uh, the Hear Him. Right. <clears throat> this next one is the Hear Him that started everything running, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Got on my knees and I said, Heavenly Father, I can't, I can't accept this assignment. It's just too hard. But the nudge and the prompting said, just go, just go. Sorry, this might not be the right one. Because you can keep playing because she goes oh, right into the story after a- this. Oh, she does. Okay. We were on a family vacation, and an unexpected situation happened where our grandson was uh, all of a sudden stopped breathing, and we lost him. After spending three days in a children's hospital with him, our hearts were very tender. As we returned back to Salt Lake, I realized that I had an assignment at the primary children's hospital. And my heart was so tender and raw, I just knew I couldn't do it. So I got on my knees and I said, Heavenly Father, I can't, I can't accept this assignment. It's just too hard. But the nudge and the prompting said, just go, just go. So with tears in my eyes, I drove to the primary children's hospital. And I thought, I'm not going to be any good for anyone, but I'm here. And as I walked in, I just the sights and the sounds just opened up so much of a heartbreak for me. And we can cut it but I got the assignment time. to meet Oliver. And I... Okay, let me pull that off. Right. So, I, th- I just wanted to um, add that she says she gets this assignment to meet Oliver. She goes in there. There's a scripture that's written up on the blackboard. Mm-hmm. Lean not into thy own understanding, you know, but trust in God. He'll direct thy paths for good. And that really had a huge impact on her. And she felt that was God speaking to her. So we have a situation where Sister Bonnie Cordon, I think that's how you pronounce it, mm-hmm. uh, Okay, Elder Holland said Corden, but still. Um, Maybe it is, yeah, sorry. Who has mentioned this on three occasions, at least. And in all three occasions, she's trying to derive some kind of spiritual significance for herself from it. The first is that she prays. Immediately, she says she goes on her knees. Right after um, the parents, which she says plural, have taken little Derek to the hospital. That's incorrect, as we'll find out. The parents did not take him to the hospital. Um that she, that God tells her that he's already gone. But in the context of this, she says he was on life support for three more days. So that's a little bit confusing to me, but she wants to have this intervention of God in this story. And of course people think, well, if God can answer your prayer that he's already gone, why couldn't God just protect little Derek and make him so that he didn't die? Which I think think is a valid question, but that's one thing. Then another story she wants to get out of it is when her son, and daughter-in-law, after they've lost the grandson, Derek, go to the airport in Florida to fly back with his car seat. There's the 
the discussion that she talked about there in order to try to derive something spiritual or good from a horrible situation. And then the third thing is what she, I think she just talked about was her primary assignment. I should say her assignment to go to the primary children's hospital shortly after returning from Florida and feeling not up to it, but feeling this, this uh, spiritual support from the scripture that was written on the whiteboard inside one of the patient's rooms. So she continues to talk about this incident and she talked about it enough to where somebody went and did some research, found this four page report, which raises a lot of issues in my yeah. mind. Yep. And we're going to put up here on the screen just to note, there are a couple other places where this story sort of shows up. Uh, this is the church news. This has to do with the whole hear him, I believe, but there's a mention of it there. And then we also have uh, the LDS magazine, Latter-day Meridian magazine, Latter-day Saints shaping the world line upon Can line. You slow that? Okay. That's 2022, August 24th. So that's yep. from that. Can you go back to the one before that? Cause yep. I thought it was 2020. That yeah, that's was. 2020. This happens in 2016. It appears that Sister Corden, and I'm going to say Corden because somebody has said they know the family and Elder Holland's pronunciation is correct. Elder, uh, Sister, Sister Corden can't stop talking about this incident in public for whatever reason. Yeah. Uh, maybe she could, but she chooses not to. Yeah, totally. Uh, just to note, we're going to go into the four-page report here, but I just want to note the website that it comes from. If I take the report and just get rid of its own specific uh, URL at the end, what we end up with is it's the state of Florida, Florida Department of Children and Families, my families, myfloridafamilies.com. It's myflfamilies.com, but the FL for Florida. And in this place is a ton of information about child abuse um, and also stored in this database are these reports about various children uh, when they are written. This is where they're published. And so people can continue to access them. So if somebody and whoever, somebody listened to Sister Corden give these uh, give this talk from the Hear Him, they looked up the information. It was actually really easy to find a simple uh, Google search of the kid's name and uh, uh, maybe another piece of information or two. And it, it easily came up. I want to pull up here. This is page one. I'm going to make this a little uh, full screen. Um, as you noted, RFM, we've got the information at the top, kid's name, date of birth, date of death, all of that stuff. This is all public information. So uh, we're not, you know, we're not doxing anybody or doing anything. These are, these are government reports. I would like to add for the record that the black um, redactions are original to the report. Those were not done by you or me or anybody apparently other than the child protective services or family support, whatever they call it in Florida, we would call it CPS over here. And, um, but the underlining in red, that was done by you, correct? Yeah. The underlining in red is data points that we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah. And then there's also underlining in purple, which are the actual injuries as they're described. So I wanted to make sure that folks had a way to kind of pay particular attention to those. But yes, the red and purple marks are mine. I don't want to read this report all the way through, but there are some parts we're just going to have to do that with. Will there be um, a link to it on the website? Yeah, we will have all of this um, as resources in the show notes so that folks can follow the trail however they want to as well. Um, so you get the family's information. Just note that there is an 11-month-old child being noted in the report. Uh, so the so the family at the time looks like they have two kids, one of them being Derek, one of them being another child. Uh, circumstances surrounding the death on December 12th. Again, you pointed out this seems to be an error, 
Although as we'll talk about later, there's a slight possibility that maybe that's accurate and it means something else. Um, but on December 12th, it says 2016, again, up here, December 10th, uh, the two-year-old child passed away from suffering after suffering apparent head trauma on December 9th, 2016. Um, according to the family, the following information was provided. Even that December 9th is messy because the injury, according to her, would have been, uh, well, maybe it would have been the early, early, early morning of December 9th. According to the family, the following information was provided. The family arrived in Florida on December 5th, 2016 for vacation. On December 8th, 2016, the family went to Hollywood Studios at approximately 9.30 a.m. They were there all day. They watched the last show for the evening at approximately 7.30 to 8. <clears throat> then went to Disney Springs to get ice cream. And then after that, they went through the drive through at McDonald's for dinner. They arrived back at the hotel at approximately 9 p.m. It should be noted, according to your understanding and mine, this is a large family vacation. There are multiple siblings. There are the parents, which is Bonnie Corden uh, and her husband. Um, Presumably her husband. I don't know if he's been specifically identified as being present. Yeah. Again, I'm somewhat guessing but we have enough details that note that there are multiple members of the family on the vacation. Um, and so as all of this is going on, keep in mind that Bonnie is on this vacation. Um, uh, her son, uh, Nolan, uh, his wife, um, Hannah and Derek, and then the other child, but there are also other siblings that are on this vacation as well. And we know that from this report also. Yes, it appears that at a minimum, um, Nolan, the father's sister, who would have been an adult, was also present somewhere in the hotel complex. Yeah. yeah. All right. So they arrived back at the hotel at approximately 9 p.m. Both children went to bed at approximately... Oh, by the way, I'm so sorry, please. Bill, I'm interrupting. Yeah, please. But the, the reason for that paragraph is to cover the fact that apparently everything's fine with everybody, including Derek, throughout the day. Whatever happens, it seemingly doesn't happen before 9 p.m. Right. There's nothing bad that happens to him through the day. And I think that that's the purpose for putting that paragraph in there. Maven, Correct. do you have something? Yeah. Um, I just, but this is one thing I also thought was a little bit strange in her telling, um, when she talks about, you know, collapsing into the bed at the end of the day, exhausted and happy. Um, I have not raised children myself and I, I live with my nephew and niece who, I mean, through my nephew being that age, he's four now, but my niece is appro approaching that age. And I just remember how I would be at that age um, after a full day of activities like that. And I think exhausted and happy is probably not how I would describe the um, what I think children that young would be at the end of a day like that. But again, yeah. um, I'll, I'll defer to you, I guess, for, for you guys to answer that. And we yeah, should. And this know, is a third day too. And we should note this is a wealthy family. No negative or positive of that, but this is a wealthy family. Wherever they're staying, again, we don't get this information, but it seems reasonable from the data that this family is staying in the same hotel in multiple hotel rooms. So it's not like they're all together in one room. It's not like they're in different hotels. And we get that because of how the report relays some of the information with the sister. Right. And I'll add to that, that that's one of the things that the report doesn't tell us is the sleeping situations and the locations of different people at the time of the event. What we are led to understand at a minimum is that Derek and his 11 year, 11 month old uh, sister are probably in the same room 
But really beyond that, it's not clear who else is in the room in terms of staying and sleeping in the room and whether the parents were in a separate room within the same suite. Correct. And I was, I was speaking more to just like how children are that young at the end of the day, you know, it's what a I lot mean? of chaos and something like this at the end. Yeah. I just, I mean, I would have been I, I just overtired I'm just out in the sun is, you know, out in Disney, I think, especially two and a half, that's very young to go through a whole full day like that. Um, that's all that I was kind of. No, no, I think it's a very good point. And when I said this is the third day, this is the third day of their vacation. Yeah. They're out there on December 5th. Yeah. So they've been, I'm sure, packing in events like anybody would do when they go to Florida and Disney World and right. Hollywood Studios, right? They've probably been to Disney before and they got packed days and at, she acknowledges as much, going on as many rides as they could, coming back exhausted yeah. and happy. And then December 8th rolls around. Strange because that's not my experience with children going through, you know, really long days like that, that um, exhausted would be, I would say that, but I mean, usually I, I just say I've just seen a lot of meltdowns, you know, which are completely understandable, 100 percent understandable at that yeah. age, you know, in this kind of situation and away from home and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, that was just something I wanted to point it out. It should be noted, though, that that statement does give her acting as a second witness that everything was fine when the kids went to bed, like up until that moment, nine o'clock and before we don't have anything pointing to any kind of strange event happening. It just seems like they had a normal family vacation day up until um up until this next section of the report so right the that's next... another thing that the report is not clear on is from whom they're getting this information yeah they're probably not talking direct they could be they don't say but they might just be looking at the police reports my my feeling is that they're probably getting this from hannah the mother mm -hmm. it goes on to say both children went to bed at approximately 10 p.m so again got back to the hotel at nine we don't know what happened between nine and ten so went to bed around 10 p.m to 10 30 at approximately midnight, Derek woke up crying. The mother indicated he was screaming from a nightmare, and she gently shook him to wake him up. She placed her hand over his mouth to quiet him, and then she realized he was not breathing. Can we stop there for just a second? Please. Is that okay if we comment mm -hmm. as we go? Let's do it. All right. Um, law enforcement with any seasoning is immediately going to see this as a huge red flag that something is wrong. First off, uh, a child is brought into the hospital, which is going to happen under very unusual and for law enforcement, suspicious circumstances. But the story apparently from the mother of Derek is that Derek woke up screaming from a nightmare and she gently shook him to wake him up. She placed her hand over his mouth to quiet him. And then she realized he was not breathing. All right. The first thing that law enforcement is going to think is how is it that a child goes from screaming, which requires a lot of breath? It requires repeated lungs full of breath. As anyone knows who's ever screamed, <gasps> you know, you've got to be able to breathe and you got to be able to breathe deeply. So how does Derek go from screaming and having unobstructed, unobstructed breathing to not breathing when the only intervening events that the mother describes is her gently shaking him to wake him up and then placing her hand over his mouth to quiet him. That's the first thing. The second thing that um, law enforcement is going to look at, um, this is actually a phenomenon that happens with some regularity, is where if someone has done something wrong 
I mean, kids do this. This is part of the human experience. It isn't just related to people who've done, you know, horrible things, but it is very, very common for people to come in and to do what's called a partial admission. I don't know if it's called that. I just called it that. I just made up that term myself. But what they'll do is they'll admit to the actuality of what it was that they did, but minimize the severity of it. And so what they have is a woman who brings in a non-responsive child to the hospital under other suspicious circumstances that we'll get to, who's reporting that she shook him gently and put her hand over his mouth. Well, if he goes from screaming to not breathing, then what law enforcement is going to look at is saying, I think this shaking was probably more than just gentle shaking. And the hand over the mouth may have been more than just something that was done temporarily or briefly. Uh, it may have been more severe than that. So I just want to make those two comments about this one line, because these would be huge red flags to the police, that something's very wrong. Yeah. And I, I want to play the other side of the coin, which is, as a parent, when I've had kids sleeping next to me, um, because I've got a young baby, young toddler, they have a nightmare. There have been times where I've nudged the kid to wake them up from the dream because they're mm -hmm. in this mode of really having um, some sort of terrible nightmare. Um, and I have at times in various times in my life uh, asked my kids to kind of be quiet. There's other people sleeping. So the, the behaviors being described in and of themselves aren't necessarily uh, indicators that something happened, although I totally agree with you, RFM they are signs that more questions should be asked and that something could possibly be going on. Uh, are you going to talk about Coco B Maven? Yeah. I think it's important. I don't know why we're going to Um, Is that better? That's good. Yeah. Okay. Good. All right. Yeah. Um, so Coco B is saying that my grandson would scream and then pass out. So I can see this. He has outgrown it now. They've done tests to figure out why, um, but anyway, he would scream and, and not breathe. So, I mean, I mean, I'm guessing you would have to be breathing to scream, but then, and then maybe just have run out of oxygen, be screaming that much maybe. And yeah. then maybe that's well, strange. It's strange. Uh, well, you know, if you, if you pass out, you're going to breathe. So I don't know what's going on with Coco B's grandson. I don't know if the tests that were run figured out why, but it's very important to, to mention that comment here because very few things are hard and fast. So yeah. I'm glad we, uh, we have that comment. And just to note, I mean, any one piece of information might be explainable in various ways but we really want to look at the collective aggregate of data here because it points to, it at least seems to point to something else. Uh, the next note it says is the father indicated when he woke up, the mother already had Derek in her arms. Um, so just to note again, what, what the father is saying is that by the time I was made aware of this situation, it had already gone South. Yep. Clean hands, <clears throat> not involved. Yep. The parents, as they thought it was faster to drive Derek to the hospital, so the mother left the hotel at 12.53 a.m. and drove Derek to Dr. Phillips Hospital. Just to note, you and I have talked about this. They're in a foreign city. This is not home. It's not like they know like the where the hospital is, like where, you know, the back of their hand. Um, so there may be GPS. There may be other ways that they have to get there. We're talking 2016. So it is a little bit of time back, but there were certainly garments and things like that that could get somebody somewhere. But generally speaking, if I had an emergency and I had to jump in my car and drive my child to the hospital, 
in a place that I've never been to before. If I have, I've only been a few times. It would be really strange to do that comfortably. Yes, you're absolutely right. The first thing, this is another red flag, is they don't call 911. Now, this story about thinking it's faster to drive Derek to the hospital is a very common story that crops up. And as a general principle, there, are, there will always be exceptions. But as a general principle, and if I, I've encountered this several times, even with my own clients, anytime something bad happens to somebody that you're with, and you don't call 911 when you could, and you drive the person to the hospital because you think it's faster. My experience has been that it's always because there's something hinky going on that you don't want the cop showing up on your doorstep. So you want to drive whoever it is to the hospital under the story that it's faster when a little bit of reflection would lead anybody to believe and understand that if you call 911, then you've got paramedics on the way in an ambulance that's going to get to your hotel faster than you can drive to the hospital in the first place. And so that's a problem. The other problem, which has been noted by somebody else already, is that this appears to leave approximately 53 minutes between the time of the incident of Derek stopping breathing and the mother leaving the hospital, excuse me, the hotel with Derek in the car to drive to the hospital. That's 53 minutes. Now it's approximately 12 o'clock. For some reason, it's exactly 12.53 a.m. One would think that they had a special reason for remembering that, whatever that might be. But that's approximately 53 minutes while Derek, who has stopped breathing, is apparently still unresponsive and there's discussion going on. There are things happening in that motel room. We don't know who's present. We would think at a minimum, the mom and the dad would be present. It would be talking about things. There may have been other people present. Perhaps Bonnie was present. I don't know. But what we do know is that after whatever discussion occurred, the decision was made to not call 911, by the way, during any of those 53 minutes. And when it came time to drive Derek to the hospital, the father elected not to go. He stayed yeah. back at the hotel, and it appears that the mother drove the unresponsive Derek to the hospital by herself. Yeah. We should like again it. note that at least grandma is in that hotel, and, it, and as we'll get to in a moment, because it's in another part of the report, there's also a sister who's there. It seems to me in a situation like this where I have a kid who has a serious health event that it seems like common sense to me that me and my wife would both jump in the vehicle and take that child. If, if we did make, again, we're calling 911, we're letting the ambulance come. But if we did all the things that they did besides the, um, uh, Oh man, I'm going blank here for a second. What is it you're trying to think of? I wanted the, to jump in real quick. If that's please, okay. please. I just want to, I just want to play devil's advocate here for, um, as far as like calling an ambulance. Mm -hmm. Um, this, this is something that I feel like, and again, maybe this has to do with privilege and my family definitely was a lot less privileged uh, than Bonnie's growing up, but like, they were really expensive. So even in my family, we'd be extremely hesitant, even if it looks like somebody has been injured pretty badly to like really, really be sure that you would want to call an ambulance for something. Now, this is obviously a child not breathing. That would be 
um, you know, something. But I, I also at the same time, I would almost feel like and again, I'm just this is my imagination. I I would feel that if if I am freaking out about a child that's not breathing, um, me taking them to the hospital feels like I'm doing something versus waiting for an ambulance to come. And or I'm waiting for 53 that. minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying to yeah. play devil's advocate about, about, I know. I, and, and I will say, I, I appreciate that. On the yeah. other hand, lots of people such as you, frankly, me, uh, have to weigh cost benefit when you call an ambulance because mm -hmm. of the cost that might be associated with it and they're extreme. And then of course we have to recognize this is a very affluent family, which is where Bill right. started off with, where right. I don't think that's something that they have to worry about. True. Yeah. But there was on the on the phone call that you'll you'll be bringing up, Bill. Um, we, we you've talked with a medical examiner, and that was something that she had brought on as well. And she even told a story about a time when her husband was extremely injured. I think her her husband's leg was completely shattered in multiple ways, and they just never thought of it. They just she yeah. Sometimes <laughs> you're in lizard brain. Yeah, yeah, you're in fight or flight, and you yeah. don't use your reasoning portion of your brain. And so, again, as we're pointing out in the beginning of the show, we don't know exactly what occurred, yeah. and we to ought to give give room where we can. Yep. Totally. I was going to say that- Thank again, you, Maven. It's really important to have all sides of the story uh, promoted here so we can yeah. try and get a balanced and good view. Again, if my kid had a, a serious health event and there's other family members there to watch my other child- me and my wife, again, I think me and my wife would get in the car and drive together. There's other family um, members, yeah. I mean, the same here. Absolutely. Why would you, as the father of the child, after 53 minutes of discussion or whatever's going on in that room, decide to send your wife alone to the hospital with the unresponsive child? In a city that you don't live in, that you certainly aren't at regularly, and now you've got to figure out how to get from your hotel to the hospital and which hospital, because you don't want to show up at the wrong one where they don't have the tools to deal with this. So again, there's a lot that goes into that. Um, all right, let me pull up page, uh, oops, let me pull up page two. All right, so... Um, at Arnold Palmer Hospital. So it was first taken to one hospital and then the kid was transported to a second hospital. Yeah. At Arnold Palmer Hospital, Derek was diagnosed with right arachnoid subdural hemorrhage, subdural hemorrhage to the left temple, subdural hemorrhage with a midline shift and retinal hemorrhaging. And we'll and, get to the, oh, please. Oh yeah, and by the way, uh, Bill, Bill did a great job. He was put in contact with a retired medical examiner, excuse me, medical examiner medical examiners do autopsies. She's a ret retired medical examiner from Texas. I think it was Austin. No, I, I say Austin. It was Travis County. Austin's mm -hmm. in yep. Travis County and also Bear County. So, and she was able to look at this and help us understand it and interpret it for us so that we could understand better what uh, these medical terms mean. And this would be another situation where this report is filtered because it was her belief that when they said hemorrhage, what they probably meant was hematoma. Vice versa, actually, because the there's places later on where it mentions hematoma, but then they they um, uh, they mention the actual autopsy itself, and it speaks of hemorrhaging. Okay, it's just that she had made the distinction between hematoma yep. being the collection of blood, yep. which can cause a bruise if it's against the skin, yep. versus hemorrhaging, which is the active bleeding. Yeah, perfect. Um, so on December 10th, 2016, again, we get this death date again, 2016, December 10th, Derek Cordon was pronounced deceased at 7.40 p.m. Again, the 
families on their that day of vacation is the eighth, goes to bed around midnight. So the night of the eighth, the early morning of the ninth, there is this health event. Uh, they get to the hospital and um, on the ninth, and now on the tenth, Derek Corden uh, is pronounced deceased at 7:40 p.m. The father and mother were uh, they consented to drug screens and both were negative. On May 9th, 2017. So now we're. Oh, by the way, let me just state the obvious. First off, they're good Mormons, so they don't have any drugs or alcohol on board. The second is that there's a reason they asked for the father and the mother to be drug screened. Okay. Now you left me hanging. Well, because they're the persons of interest. Totally. Okay. I just thought maybe you were going to say they're looking for something specific. Um, okay. On May 9th, 2017. So now we know that this report. Um, at least has uh, occurred because we also get a date at the end of the report being signed. We yeah. know that, um, what is it? Five months have gone by. Yeah. Um, the reports dated, the signatures are dated May 11th, mm -hmm. May 9th, two days before uh, the investigation is closed. So yeah. the child protective services, I'm sorry, I know they call it something else. The family uh, protection division or whatever yeah. it is they call it Florida is in closing their investigation now. Yeah. So May 9th. So we're five months later. And the reason I think that's important is because if we're only dealing with this report having come out a few days after this incident, then we would recognize that there might be plenty of time for them to work out explanations for how this child suffered its injuries. But at this point, five months have gone by and they've concluded their their research and their uh, this report. And so what it says is verified findings of death physical injury and internal injuries as to Derek Corden with Hannah Corden as the caregiver responsible. In other words, this is saying that according to this, their verified finding is that Hannah Corden was the person responsible for Derek's injuries. She, she on some way caused them verified findings of medical neglect as to Derek Corden with Nolan Corden as the caregiver responsible which just points out that while they are saying they don't think he caused it directly, there were lots of steps he could have taken in at least that 53 minutes that would have led to a different result. Yes. Okay. And then no indicators of inadequate supervision as to Derek Corden. I think this also doesn't work in their favor because they're basically saying you were there. You, you, there wasn't any time that he really is unexplainably away from you. And so we don't have a moment where we could suggest that injuries came in some other fashion. Right. And one of the things that uh, CPS does commonly is they also investigate cases where children get injured because they're not being appropriately supervised. All they're saying here is that this isn't that kind of a case. That's right. my reading of it. The child protection team completed a medical examination addendum in the medical opinion was that the mother shook Derek vigorously, resulting in his sudden change in mental status an alteration in respiratory pattern. The family was neglectful in not calling 911 and not notifying the father's sister who is an RN. That's so, where we get that one point. Go ahead. Yeah, so let's just stop here and talk about it. This is noting that the sister who's a registered nurse was across the hall, presumably, but certainly within reach of the family. And when this incident happened at midnight, uh, they have a sister within reaching distance of them at the same location who is a registered nurse. And for whatever reason, during those 53 minutes, they never chose, never thought to choose or never chose intentionally 
to go get their registered nurse sibling who could have helped in this situation. Right. It would seem a natural thing to do under the circumstances. Yeah. So uh, that then it says the family was neglectful and not having a family member accompany the mother. Again, this is important because it contradicts what Bonnie's saying in these videos. Uh, in not having a family member accompany the mother while she was driving to the hospital with Derek. And so that's where we get family, the fact that it's only the mom driving. Yep. The whole family's on vacation and mom goes to the hospital by herself. And at the very least, the this report seems to indicate that dad or somebody else should have gone and doesn't. And they see that as an indicator of some um, of his being neglectful. Some ne Yeah, some neglect. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see here. By the time Derek arrived to Dr. Phillips Hospital, he was in full cardiopulmonary arrest and required CPR. His clinical examination was consistent with a severe brain injury. So here we get into, as you pointed out, RFM, I talked to a Dr. Peacock. She's a retired uh, deputy medical examiner uh, in Texas in uh, Clark County. And what was the other one? It was uh, Travis County and Bear County. Sorry, Travis and Bear, correct. And uh, I spoke to her for about 38 minutes. Um, I She has asked that her audio not be played, but I did allow RFM and Maven to hear the recorded portions. Um, so we'll go through this, and I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but there are a couple points we need to make. According to this consultation, Derek's cause of death was blunt head and neck trauma. The manner of death was homicide. The injury included a right subdural hematoma, a right brain contusion with an intraparenchymal and subarachnoid extension. There was a bilateral optic nerve hemorrhages and right retinal hemorrhages. There were, there were no traumatic injuries to the neck, muscle, uh, muscle clature. Musculature. Yep. Thank you. There was evidence of right to left brain shift with herniation. The cervical spinal cord showed a small intraparenchymal contusion, and there was a two by half centimeter contusion with an adjacent hematoma of the right parietal lobe. So those are all going to be foreign to most of our audience. We should note that contusion uh, means a bruise, that hematoma is a pool of blood that builds up. So for instance, I mentioned to Dr. Peacock that I watch MMA fighting and sometimes the guys will get punched in their head and they'll get this big bubble on their head, which is just a pool of blood that builds up, and the announcers will call it a hematoma. Um, and hemorrhage is that somewhere there's there's actual bleeding taking place that that's not normal, some sort of artery or something that's that's leaking or spilling blood. Yeah, I feel compelled to say that that these pictures now that you're showing of uh, apparently oh, yeah, uh, please, CT please. scans or whatever they are yeah. have nothing to do with this case. They are no. only for illustrative purposes. Yeah, they're just to help us understand what these kind of injuries would look like. Yes. Right. So what um, is this with the, the three arrows then that's pointing to a subdural hematoma? So uh, can you get rid of the comment there? I thought maybe it was on the below in the picture. Oh, it's not there. Um, yes, this is a uh, hematoma. This is, uh, there's a sec section that's blood and it's, uh, I'm going to stammer here because I'm not a medical expert. It's okay. What you have around the outside, or are you, Maven? It just it's a type of bleed inside your head that occurs yeah. within the skull, but outside of the actual brain tissue. So that's yeah. the show. right. Thank you. So you got the skull on the outside. Underneath it is a layer called the dura. And I think that's the white stuff here. And then if you have a hemorrhage under the dura, between the dura and the brain itself, 
which is usually caused by an impact or a striking motion of some mm -hmm. sort to the, the skull. That's why it's called a subdural hematoma, hematoma because it's a hematoma that occurs under the dura. Yep. Uh, a, neuro, a neuropathology consultation was performed by a doctor, Aaron Wagner of Orlando Regional Medical Center. He stated that there was no evidence of mass lesions or thrombus of the superior sagittal sinus. He again described the brain herniation and right parietal contusion. He stated that the, say that again, RFM. Oh, I'm so sorry. I wasn't the even following you. I was looking at the comments. Vasculature? Oh, musculature. No, that's vasculature. Vasculature. Was in the expected anatomic distribution and that all vessels were patent. That section there is simply saying we don't have other things that are going on that would explain these injuries. They're basically trying to cover their bases here and say, look, there are certain things that could cause the injuries we did see. And if it was anything else, we would notice other things. And those things aren't here. Um exactly. Okay, so Dr. Wagner also documented the cervical spinal cord contusion and right parietal contusion. He confirmed bilateral optic nerve hemorrhages. Stop there for a second, just to Please. make something clear. Mm -hmm. There's a bilateral optic nerve, oh, excuse me, uh, where you do documented the cervical spinal cord contusion, that's on the back of the spinal cord, mm -hmm. and the right parietal contusion. So there are contusions at the back of the neck and on the right temple area of Derrick. Yes. Those are the two main points of impact, apparently. Yes. Um, Dr. Wagner also documented the cervical spinal cord contusion, right parietal contusion. He confirmed bilateral optic nerve hemorrhages and retinal hemorrhages of the right eye. He described no developmental abnormalities. There were uh, there are no medical conditions diagnosed by either Dr. Stefani or Dr. Wagner that would explain Derek's sudden alteration of mental status or heterogeneous uh, subdural hematoma, brain and spinal cord contusions, optic nerve hemorrhages, and retinal hemorrhages. The impression of this medical consultation remained the same as the prior medical consultations. So we have multiple medical personnel coming to the same conclusion. Now I'll say here in terms of talking to Dr. Peacock, um, I, I went into, cause I've seen uh, again, because of her talking about gently shaking him, Dr. Peacock and I talked about shaken baby syndrome. She said the amount, the degree of which a child would have to be shaken to give some of these uh, injuries. Uh, it would be so extreme that you that a, that a room of people there would be no training needed you would just instinctively and those are her words instinctively you would know that what is happening is abuse and it is causing injury right like it is it is going way further than anything that could be explained as normal kind of physical contact yes and i'll add to that that she emphasized the difference between a baby and a two-year-old mm, and the, the difference in the development of their brain and also their strength in their neck and that for a two-year-old to be shaken in such a way as to cause this um, injury at the back of the neck, which is what she believed this shows, it would have been so violent that anybody looking at this would have been going, oh my God, what are you doing? Yeah. She also noted that some of the injuries described here didn't, uh, didn't bother her because when the initial injuries start, the issue is that as time goes on, the brain swells more and more and additional injuries occur. And so some of these injuries, specifically like the retinal ones um, and the optical nerve, 
she mentions that, look, if, if these injuries happen, there's so much time that goes by. By the time they get to the hospital, additional injuries have occurred that are simply the process of the brain swelling. Um, and, and those should not be blamed on whatever the incident was that took place. But then she also noted that some of these injuries were so serious that it, she said it doesn't get easily explained by shaken baby syndrome. She said something along the lines of like, uh, it would like one of the things that could cause it would be to take a child and throw them against a bathtub, for instance, was one right, of now the, you're going to this, you're going yeah. to the, the injury to the right, uh, temple area. Yeah, it was much more serious and indicative of some sort of harsh physical contact that would have had to have taken place to have caused it. By the way, I'm also noting as Maven is putting comments up that uh, several of the comments seem to be folks who also have some sort of training or understanding of these issues and also are pointing to this appears to be a deeply physical contact kind of injury. Um, right, and uh, Dr. Peacock said that when you're dealing with young children, they are very plastic was the word that she used. And so they don't fall and hit their head against something typically and cause these kinds of severe injuries. She was trying to emphasize the degree of force that was required to cause this kind of injury to the right side of the neck and also to the back of the neck. But that would leave these kinds of subdural hematoma and this kind of injury to Derek's head. Correct. And, and she was adamant. I mean, she didn't really leave much room there. She, you know, I said, Hey, some people are saying maybe a vaccine could cause this. And um, some people are saying, you know, maybe yeah, she laughed out loud at that one. Yeah. She said, um, we, we talked about, uh, falls. I'm, I'm assuming maybe maybe that's the point you want to make is it falls. Yeah. So by all means, please, if you were going to get there, please or not, go but, ahead. But she just explained it. If uh, just going back to what RFM said about the plasticity, um, that if it, if this could have been caused by a normal fall, she said we would have a lot more dead children than we do because they just fall off of stuff all the time. And I was telling, um, I was telling Bill actually before the show, I uh, fell, I think I was about three and I fell out of a second story window um, at my great grandparents' house because I was jumping on the bed next to a, an open window that just had a screen covering it. And I, I uh, just, I got bounced, I, I bounced myself sideways, I guess, and I hit the screen and obviously that's not enough to stop a toddler. So I fell from the second floor window and I was banged up a little bit, but I, I didn't even, you know, there was no any like, injuries there. So that's what, um, she was saying just the kids fall all the time, yeah. even from some pretty good heights, you know, and, uh, and, and it's just a normal fall for, for a kid is just not enough to cause this kind of damage. Yeah. She said this could not have happened from a three foot, two foot, three foot, four foot fall. That, that isn't yeah. how this or, would have or even higher, you yeah. know? So yeah. And she likened, and, and she was just searching about for some kind of mechanism of injury to this, uh, child's right temple area, uh, blood force injury. Blunt is force mentioned mm -hmm. and blunt force trauma mm -hmm. is mentioned throughout this report. And of course, I know what blunt force trauma is just from my training. But then there were other things in there that were confusing me because they looked like shaking. But blunt force is not shaking. Blunt force is re received in two ways. Either you get hit with something that very hard that is blunt or you get thrown against or impact something that's stationary. That's very blunt. And so Dr. Peacock's um, theory based upon this report that most likely what happened was that Derek was shaken violently first, thus accounting for the injury in the back of the neck, and then subsequently thrown very hard um, and landed with his right 
temple against some hard object, which she said could have been maybe the bathtub. And I think she suggested throwing a child into the bathtub and maybe their head hits the edge of the bathtub or the faucet or something, something with enough force to cause this injury. Yeah. So then on page three, the Orange County Sheriff's Office investigated the death of Derek Cordon, uh, gives the case number. On December 9th, 2016, Hannah Cordon was arrested and charged with aggravated child abuse. I noted to you earlier, um, of course, that the, she can't be charged with anything greater yet because the child is still alive. So aggravated child abuse, the, the child dies, again, according to what seems like most of the data in these reports, the following day at 7.40 p.m. on December 10th. On December 9th, Hannah Cordon's arrested and charged with aggravated child abuse. No additional charges were filed against the mother, and the state attorney is not pursuing the aggravated child abuse charge. So even after the child dies, this report indicates that no further charges were added and that for whatever reason, and I want you to explain this for a moment, RFM, for whatever reason, the state attorney is not pursuing the aggravated child abuse charge. How does that part of the process work? Well, who knows what they do in Florida, but typically there's some kind of similarity across these United States. So this is one of the things also that I have questions about. I'm not sure what it is they mean, and I'm not sure if they're using these technical legal terms in the same way that I would use them. But they are saying that on December 9th, which is probably when Hannah shows up at the hospital with this a very suspicious story um, that she's arrested and charged with aggravated child abuse. Now, if she is charged with aggravated child abuse, the prosecutor doesn't just get to decide to decline to pursue charges. I mean, they can't just leave it. There's a charge file. They would have to actually dismiss the charge against her. And there would be a court file and a court case that would contain those documents. So I'm not sure what they mean by that. I think what they mean by is not uh, where they say no additional charges were filed against the mother is that after the 9th of December, when she's arrested and according to this charge, the child dies. So obviously she could be charged with something uh, having to do with homicide of the child because the child has now passed away. And I think what they're saying there is that no additional charges of that kind were filed against the mother other than the simple aggravated child abuse charge. And then they say the state attorney is not pursuing the aggravated child abuse charge. So basically, bottom line is, is that regardless of whether she was arrested, eh, maybe she was. I mean, they've got the reports or charge that she is no longer charged if she ever was. And so nobody is apparently um, being held to face the music in a criminal venue for what happened. And you and I talked off the air. We wanted to make the point here. There are some folks who are suggesting here that Curtin and McConkie came in and paid off these people or somehow the church being a major landowner in Florida had enough influence to be able to make these charges go away. And I just want to note between you and me, um, th that seems that seems far-fetched, correct? Preposterous would be the word I would think. Yeah. No, uh, people say that to me. They're so rich. They're so wealthy. Look, rich people get charged all the time. If you're suggesting that a prosecutor was paid off or something, that is something that uh, while anything is possible, that is virtually inconceivable that that would happen. It would not just be that prosecutor being paid off, but you'd have to go to the top guy in the office, the elected official, because he's going to know that this is being dismissed. And he might have a few questions about why this deputy prosecutor is dismissing charges if the prosecutor himself, the elected prosecutor, is not handling it. 
which it probably isn't in a county of that size. Yeah. So, no, um, I want to quash that because I think that is um, ridiculous. I think yep. that's a conspiracy theory that I do not believe for a second. Uh, theoretically, yeah, anything's possible, but this is extremely unlikely. And I think, too, them being out an out-of-state family actually might bring uh, law enforcement to be even a little harsher with them, seeing as it's an easy, kind of an easy target to to go after uh, and show your people in your state that you take crime seriously. Um, I, I think there's more of a propensity with it being an out-of-state family to actually pursue the charges. And I'll also add that if this were in Utah and, you know, the, 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 uh, state attorney is uh, a good temple recommend holding Mormon. Maybe we could have that conversation on my end, maybe, but being that this is in Florida, being all the other data here, I agree with you. This seems far-fetched and absurd. Well, thank you. We agree on something then. I love it. By the way, I do want to say that uh, people have asked, well, why isn't the mother being prosecuted? Why did they not pursue charges? And I think that the, the situation is this, um, and Dr. Peacock hypothesized the same thing, is that when you're a prosecutor, which I was for eight years, you've got to file charges against an individual. And you have to prove every element of the offense charged against that individual. In this case, it looks like there would be at least two people who would be just as likely to have done the deed. It doesn't appear that there's a whole lot of question that Derek died by homicide, i.e. by the infliction of uh, a traumatic trauma by another person. Some, somebody's responsible, obviously, according to the report, according to the autopsy, which we'll get to. But who is it? Is it the mom or is it the dad who very suspiciously stays back at the, the, at the, at the hotel and doesn't go to the hospital, right? Or could the dad have done something to the child before it started screaming and that caused it to scream? And then the mother wakes up and the, the dad has left. So what you've got here is a situation where based upon the information that's at least in this report, and I'm sure it was available to the prosecutor, you would have trouble proving 51%. And that's just a preponderance of the evidence against the mom or the dad and certainly much less than proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which is required in a criminal case. So I think that's the most likely reason why charges were not pursued against either the mother or the father. Perfect. On December 12, 2016, District 9 Chief Medical Examiner Joshua Stefani, MD, completed an autopsy of Derek Corden. Uh, you've got that examination report. Cause of death, blunt head and neck trauma manner of death, homicide, autopsy findings, evidence of injury. So now this is the third person who's putting their two cents into uh, the medical status of things uh, because you had two physicians before who were commenting on the injuries in this report. Autopsy findings, evidence of injury, right subdural hemorrhage, status post-right craniotomy with residual blood in the right subdural space at the time of the autopsy, right uh, cortical contusion, with the intraparenchymal and subarachnoid extension. By the way, Dr. Peacock has helped me to pronounce those things what I think is appropriately. Uh, bilateral optic nerve hemorrhages, right retinal hemorrhage, and cervical spinal cord hemorrhage. 
uh, conclusion and consideration of the circumstances surrounding oh, the by death. By the way, if I could please. just inter interrupt here. Please. Um, the fact that what it says conclusion and this paragraph is in italics suggests to me that this is copied and pasted directly from the autopsy conclusion. Beautiful. In consideration of the circumstances surrounding the death and after examination of the body, toxology analysis, microscopic analysis, bacterial cultures, and viral molecular panel, it is my opinion that the death of Derek Corden, a two-year-old white infant witnessed to go unresponsive and subsequently transported to the hospital, is the result of blunt head and neck trauma. Toxology was positive for isopropanol alcohol. This is due to postmortem contamination due to isopropanol um, alcohol being used during the autopsy. Bilateral bacterial lung cultures were negative. Again, they're looking for other explanations, right? A respiratory viral molecular panel was negative. Blood cultures were positive uh, for coagulus, negative staphylococcus and streptococca. Streptococci. Uh, there you go. I feel... These are due to post-mortem contamination and not contributory toward the cause of death. The manner of death is homicide. Then we get, and this, this raised a red flag for me, RFM, and I don't know if it did for you, but I'm curious. As we get into this page and the last page, when you were dealing with the McKenna-Denson case, there were certain reports that were more heavily redacted than what seemed appropriate. And I feel like we're running into that again here, that there, that in the midst of all these blackened out areas, that there would be words that could easily not be redacted. And is so that we don't share people's personal information, it seems like they go a little above and beyond here in these next two sections here and then on the final page. Um, but I want to show that last page before you comment on it, if you don't mind. Other children in the family, the family was provided with grief counseling information. The case met the criteria for clearly observable based on Derek's injuries and verified report by the child. Let's get to that page. Child protection, child protection team stating that Derek's injuries are consistent with non-accidental abusive head trauma. Can we stop there for a second? Please. Go back to the last page with that redaction. Yep. Because what is almost certainly there has to do with the 11 month old, because the family was provided with grief counseling information. It's under the subheading other children in the family. The 11 month old is not mentioned. So likely is talked about in the redacted portion, mm -hmm. at least that much. Yep. Um, but again, you can say a lot and still mark off a person's name and any other identifying uh, info and still leave a lot of words and sentences visible. They can, but on the other hand, we're not dealing with a report that's being given to us by the BYU Police Department. No. So, no. So I expect they're doing the best they can. Yeah. Uh, and I don't uh, detect any ulterior kind of uh, motive in this. No. I think they're probably doing the best they can. But I think that the reason it's redacted is because it has to do with the 11 month old. Perfect. Uh, and then. Oh, and can I say this? Oh, please. The reason that's important for CPS is I think evident to everybody, especially if you had any dealings with them, is that if there's a child who has been abused or anything killed, I mean, that's a form of abuse in extreme form, then CPS is tasked with looking out for the welfare of other children in the family because they might be at risk as well. Correct. You, you wouldn't want to send an abusive parent who's caused the death of a child 
back into a home of other children. Right. So frequently in situations like that, children in that home are at least temporarily taken in place with other family members, which would be the first option. And the last option would be putting them into the foster care system. Yeah. All right. So the child protection team stating that Derek's injuries are consistent with non-accidental abuse, head trauma, the case met the criteria for eminent as Derek passed away from abuse of head trauma and neither that mother or father have provided an explanation that was consistent with the injuries that Derek was presenting with. And that's the the last, or maybe the last, huge, huge flag is about the autopsy findings and how the mother's explanation doesn't account for the injuries that caused his death and neither does the father's. So somebody apparently is not giving us the full story. Yeah. The case met the correct. Oh, go ahead, Maven. Um, I was just going to say it's been pointed out in the comments that the father is an attorney. And so that I've just said that he would have some information on how to act or, or the, I guess informing his actions or lack of actions is what is um, being has been put in the comments as well. Ooh, that's Do you think that would make a difference? I, I don't know. It, it's, it's making sense to me why that would. Um, how do you think? Anything specific, maybe? I mean, just if just knowing certain things to say and maybe not to say. So even though the truth isn't being put, he hasn't said anything uh, apparently it, enough to be incriminating or damning or, you know, and just maybe there's was some advisement on what things to say and what not to say uh, before his wife went to the hospital with the child. Um, and just subsequently, just, just ab- avoiding saying the things that would get somebody charged and would get somebody in front of a court. That's that's yeah. what I'm thinking. And I think that's what the audience is wondering as well. It is totally possible. And I'm not even going to say it's completely unlikely. All I'm going to suggest is what most likely happens in a situation like this is attorney or not. There's a massive, horrific tragedy that has happened, unanticipated, unexpected, perhaps in a rash moment. But During that 53 minutes, I'm expecting that very little is going on except for lizard brain activity. Maybe after the first 30 minutes, maybe they can get their stuff together and start thinking about it because decisions were made. Decisions were made to not call 911, assuming it crossed somebody's mind in the first place. You've got at least four adults present. You've got Bonnie, you've got the two parents, you've got the RN sister across the hall who was never notified. Apparently, and I say that apparently because that's what's said. Okay, so you got all these adults present. Nobody really thinks about calling 911 in 53 minutes with an unresponsive child who's not breathing. That's hard to believe. Possible, but hard to believe. So like I say, there's all this discussion that's going on. And ultimately, the decision is made that the father's going to stay at the motel while the mother alone drives the unresponsive two-year-old to the hospital. Also note the comment here, the sister, because she's a registered nurse, would almost assuredly be a mandatory reporter. Also note that you can vouch for this in a criminal trial. Spouses are not, they don't have to testify against their spouse. Well, here's the deal. Uh, All states, to my knowledge, uh, have spousal immunity statutes, but there are almost always, and I'm sure it's the case in Florida, that there are caveats carved out. There are in my state that that spousal immunity does not apply when there is a charge of injury or abuse to the child or to the other spouse. Mm. Interesting. All right. So um, neither the father or mother provided an explanation that was consistent with the injuries that Derek was presenting with. The case met the criteria for out of control as the mother's impulsive actions. By the the way, while you're you're reading, since some people listen to this in audio, 
you ended that sentence as if it ended there instead of running into a line or two of redaction. Yeah. So right after, uh, with the injuries that Derek was presenting with, and then I don't see a period, I just see redaction and then a period at the end of the redaction. Yes. And then it starts up again. The case met the criteria for out of control as the mother's impulsive and violent actions and the father's inaction has led to Derek's death. The case met the criteria for severe as Derek was deceased. And then we get a bunch of redaction again. And then we get a, a, a phrase, the case is very high risk. And then a bunch of redaction again. And then another section of redaction. And then we get a just a summary that talks about um, there was no, uh, the family does not have any current involvement with the Florida Department uh, of Family Services, whatever they're called. And then also the family does not have any prior abuse report in Florida, which we wouldn't expect because they're not native to that state. Right. Now, um, I think that in the upper part of that last page, what they're saying is that there are certain legal criteria under the statute in, in Florida that they have to meet. And one of them would be that um, it is out of control and it's high risk. In other words, these cases meet, this case meets these criteria. And I'll tell you one big question that I have is what, if anything, did CPS do separate and apart from the criminal justice system? Because they don't operate in tandem. Frequently, there are no charges filed, but CPS sure as heck gets involved because they don't have to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt in order to take uh, action, simply to have it found, a verified finding like they have in this report to take action. And one wonders what, if anything, they did regarding the 11-month-old child, because here in this final subsection where it says summary of prior agency involvement with family, it says the family does not have any prior abuse report in Florida, period. Well, we would expect that. They're, they're on vacation, right? But then there are three lines yeah. that are redacted in that section. Actually, I wonders, think two full lines and then two partial lines. So four lines, maybe. Because yeah, this looks like see, a line, I, line, 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 and line. Yeah, I see that it's probably just this three. But regardless, what is it that happens after that period? under the subsection summary of prior agency involvement with family. Yeah. There's nothing in Florida, but they're not from Florida. I don't know what's behind those other black lines because I can't read them, but one would presume it would fit under the category of prior agency involvement with the family. Yeah. Yep. And then you just got the uh, two signatures signing off on it. And then the date of this report as five 11, 2017. Um, so the only thing I, oh, let me go do something else here. The, the yeah, and Marco, Mark is talking about the key point here is the lack of interest in investigating this further. One gets the sense from this is that, uh, child protective services is somewhat frustrated with the situation that it's not going forward criminally. I mean, I'm reading between the lines on that, mm -hmm. but really there is no more investigation to be done at this point, because by this point, the, um, the parents, the mom, the dad, they've lawyered up. They're not going to be giving any more information beyond what they already gave. And what they gave initially is simply insufficient to prove a criminal charge against either one of them individually beyond a reasonable doubt. So I don't know that there's any more investigation that could have been done in this case. 
Yeah. I want to mention some of the anomalies again before we go into the three videos one more time as we kind of close out. I want to also just note here in the obituary, there's two things that are important. One is that the family's obituary notice for Derek also acknowledges December 10th, 2016 as the uh, date that he was pronounced deceased. This is important because, again, Bonnie says that she was at this child's bedside for three days. She does it in two of the three videos that we showed. So we need to recognize that if the child went to the hospital on the morning of the 9th and died on the evening of the 10th, at most she could claim would be two days. It's about, uh, what was it, 24 hours plus, and it's around 36, maybe 40 hours later. Yep. Yep. So less than two days of time. Uh, The other thing that I think is at least important to note, if we're going to try to cover this in full, uh, let me try to find it here, right here. Although he, although he struggled to learn how to talk, many of his first words and phrases were about trucks and it goes on about his favorite word two ton truck or the first word he said, but just to note, this implies that he had some sort of learning disability. And I just want to note that uh, in situations of child abuse, when Kids are uh, have additional challenges that also builds up more tension and sometimes frustration as you're trying to deal with all the uh, challenges of life. This is just one more. And I can only imagine that having a learning disability, right, wrong, or indifferent, slightly adds to uh, some of the difficulty of raising a child, just to note that. Um, but that's all I've got from the obituary. Now, now I want to note these anomalies again. These are the facts as they stood out to me. These are the facts I think as they stood out to you, RFM. Uh, I want to run through them really quick, and then I want to watch these videos again with us knowing kind of this full story now. Any other words from you before I do that? I would say that this report appears to be the third report that was issued by this agency. They refer into they refer in it to a report they did. They called it an addendum, which apparently was previous to the one on February 21st that they did. So there's one before February 21st, there's one on February 21st, and then there's this final concluding summary from May 11th of 2017. And that raises the question to me is why were there multiple reports done on the same issue and who requested them and for what purpose? Yeah. Also, when you play Sister Corden again, you will note that she says that the parents, plural, drove Derek to the hospital. Well, it appears from this report that the parents did not, that the mother did, and the father stayed at the hotel. I think that the reason that she says parents, plural, is because that's what we would expect, is that the parents would drive the child to the hospital. And I can't read her mind, but she says parents, mainly because I think that's what we would expect. And if she said just one parent drove the kid to the hospital, that would raise more red flags than she's already raised. Yeah, totally. All right, so uh, point number one, gently shook him and put a hand over his mouth. Um, Again, I mentioned the learning disability in the obituary. The father uh, imposes that he was only present and aware of the situation once it had gone south. Um. At midnight, the event happens. They say they left the hotel at 12.53 a.m., almost an hour from the initial onset of the uh, health event to head to the hospital. Um, 
in a city they don't live in, sending the mom alone or her choosing to go alone. Medical team made the conclusion that Hannah shook the child too hard and that the father was neglectful and not responding faster. The family did not call 911 in the face of an emergency in a foreign city. The family did not try to grab their sister, who is a registered nurse, who is also on vacation, uh, assumedly in the same hotel as they are, because the medical report saw it as, um, uh, what's the word I want to say? What's that? I'm sorry. Was it neglectful again? Yeah, some sort of neglect and not reaching out to her. Thank you. The mother, Hannah, drove alone to the hospital. We already mentioned that. Hannah is arrested on December 9th same day that the kid comes to the hospital with these injuries and is charged with aggravated child abuse. The child hasn't died yet. He passes away the following day, again, according to most dates in the report, on the 10th, as well as the obituary, which also notes the 10th. Sometime between the event and the date of this report on May 2017, the state attorney has decided he isn't going to prosecute. Uh, neither parents could give an explanation that was consistent with the injuries in the investigation after five months deemed the mother's actions impulsive and violent and the father's inaction having led to this child's death. All the while, the entire Corden family is, I shouldn't say the entire, but all the while members, significant members of the Corden family are, are on vacation in a different state with the registered nurse sister across the hall, assumedly. 11-month-old, these parents uh, have, and on some level, because we have a a Christmas photo, which I can actually put up on the screen right now. We have a Christmas photo that's from December 12th, 2020. I have uh, blurred out all of the faces except for the folks that are involved directly with this incident. And um, you'll see that uh, Hannah... Uh, likes is there. I shouldn't say it this way. Hannah is tagged in this Facebook photo. You can see that at the top. You can see the date of December 12th, 2020. You can see that that's Hannah and Nolan there on the left. Uh, Hannah and Nolan again on the bottom left picture in the top left. And then Hannah and Nolan again on the bottom right picture on the left. And you also see there Bonnie Corden, uh, the whole family in Christmas matching pajamas. So here we are four years later, and I don't want to make anything out of this, just just to note that the family seems to still be all connected. And uh, and again, n- not that they shouldn't, but enjoying Christmas four years later. Okay. Yeah, um, and I, I, I would think that they had better hope that Hannah and Nolan stay happily married because if for any reason they split up, I think somebody's going to have more to say. Yeah. And by the way, Dr. Peacock mentioned that, that in some of these cases, law enforcement simply waits for the, for the relationship to break up. And then almost assuredly, somebody's willing to tell what happened. Yeah. And here's another funny thing that may or may not play into this is that if a person commits a murder, and they are fortunate enough to do it in such ways to get away with it. Okay. It's like a dream come true, right? You commit murder, you get away with it. A not lot that, of times not those... that this is a murder. Oh, no, I'm just talking about. Correct. Just generally speaking. Oh, yeah. Just generally speaking. Yeah. So uh, they get away with murder. <clears throat> but a lot of those people ultimately get caught. And do you know why? <laughs> because they can't keep their mouth shut. 
Yeah. Guilty they have to tell it to yeah. somebody. Yeah. And then that somebody calls the police. There seems to be a compulsion that people have, not everybody, the ones who get away with it never talk, right? But to, to talk about it, maybe it's a matter of confession or unburdening their soul or whatever. And I'm not saying that that is what um, uh, Bonnie Corden is doing. I, I think that the very fact that she's talking about this openly suggests that she does not believe that anything bad or malicious happened. One would presume she would know that her daughter-in-law got arrested. One would presume she would know if charges were filed against her daughter-in-law. But I think that based on my experience, parents and grandparents in situations like this frequently cannot allow themselves to even entertain the notion that a member of the family did something this horrific because it's simply too horrible to contemplate. So I think that she is not believing that something bad happened. And yet for some reason, which I'm not able to divine, she keeps returning to the subject and she keeps trying to force God into a situation where God does not seem to be able to be found. And I don't know if this is part of her processing it and trying to find a purpose or a reason behind it. All I know is that she can't not talk about this. And it's because she has continued to talk about it in this most recent iteration that led to this revelation of the four page report and to tonight's podcast and to my requesting the police reports in this investigation. Totally. Mm, yes, very much. The, the last two things here, then I want to play each of these movies or each of these little videos, I should say, and then we can comment on them independently. Yeah. Um, and also uh, callers. Yeah, please yeah. let us know your thoughts about these things and watch these videos. It's very interesting. Now that you know all the, the facts that we know or that we can intuit from this four-page report, these statements by Sister Corden seem to take on new life and perhaps new meaning. Totally. Uh, I mentioned the 11-month-old at the time. You can see, again, it's blurred out so you can't see who it is or what, but there is a child still with them. I assume it's the 11-month-old. Um, but we have the last thing I wanted to say was from December 9th, 2016 to May 11th of 2017, the state of Florida has maintained that this was a homicide caused by uh, somebody. Uh, and they point to uh, Hannah Corden um, and with neglect by uh, on Derek's part, inaction on Derek's part that also uh, contributed to it, uh, offering and, and noting that the parents in this five months after the death in 2016 to the final report date of May of 2017, the parents have not yet offered in that time span a satisfactory explanation. What, what are you doing there, RFM? I'm trying to look over Coco B. There we go. Oh, Thank gotcha. You. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. That was kind of cool. All right. Let's let's go back, uh, Maven. If you don't mind, let's replay the first video about the car seat. And everyone pay close attention to her words and let's make sense of this in light of what we now know. I just had one comment before I, I go ahead and throw that up there. But Please, um, with this story being told so much, and just some of the other ones that you guys have covered on the show before, I'm especially thinking, um, I forget the name of who did it, but the, uh, um, the gnat that was resurrected, I just, it just really seems like you would think that there would be better stories uh, that really, really grasping at straws 
for faith promoting stories these days. And I don't know, I guess that's just what's interesting to me that there's nothing else. It, it, there, there's nothing else she's got. I, I just wonder why. It, yeah. In light of, yeah. In light of all that we now know, it seems extremely strange for her to even talk about it at all. Right. And there would not be a better story in the, in God's true church where a, a lot of all these, you know, I just feel like there should be a lot of stories that people could choose from. She should have an array of stories that she would not have to be keep coming back to this one, but it's not, it just seems like a problem across the board. I think she's going to wish she did a good story. So yeah. you got to pull where you can. Maven, let me just ask you, if you were in Bonnie Corden's position and presuming that she does not believe that anything wrong happened and that's why she's talking about it, but she knows that this is a horrible situation and her daughter-in-law was arrested and there were criminal repercussions, at least initially, would you talk about this story ever publicly? I I have a family member who's had some legal trouble. And while I am, I believe that you know, I, I guess I, I don't ever talk about it because uh, regardless of whether, you know, what, what my opinion on the, his guilt is or not, um, it's definitely something that's problematic. So I, I already have an experience or, you know, something similar in my family where I even with presumed innocence, I don't bring it up ever. It and yet here you are talking about it. Publicly. Here I am talking about it publicly, right? But I mean, <laughs> big enough that, that you know, any people who would know would know and people who don't won't. But, you know, I guess I, would, I wouldn't be bringing it up as a faith-promoting story, that's for sure. So I never would. I would never talk about it because I would be concerned, number one, that somebody might do exactly what somebody did, which is go digging. Yeah. Let sleeping dogs lie for crying mm -hmm. out loud. But Sister Corden can't do that. Yeah. It's strange. Okay. Um, so car seat story is the first one. Car seat story, first one. I love that you're both kind of assuming nobility well, that's of not all the, people. You know, every that's not the one, Maven. It was just be I think this is the isn't this the car seat story? It, it is. Well, maybe maybe it is. I'm yeah. sorry, my bad. Super Don't sorry. When <laughs> we never know what circumstances people are coming from. Um I know I've, you know, been in a meeting at times and they'll be discussing things and you think, as you prayerfully listen, you think, where are they coming from? Because it's a totally different thought than maybe how we're thinking or how we perceive it should be right. Um, let me just give you a story that may or may not illustrate some of the principles here that we're talking about. Listen to this. Um, and it's kind of a story of just misunderstanding. Um, maybe a little bit of suspicion that someone was trying to get away with something, or um, but it ended with a lot of compassion and love. In December, about to, uh, December 2016, my um, son and his dear wife um, were checking into the airport in Florida, and they had tragically um, and unexpectedly lost their two and a half year old on a vacation. And as they were checking in, they had a lot of luggage and they had this little car seat. And the agent looked at him and said, you have too much luggage here, we're going to have to charge you. My daughter-in-law, of course, with a very heavy heart and not quite, had a lot of emotion going on. She said, um, you know, they didn't charge us for the car seat when we came out. And the lady, kind of suspicious, said, where's the child? 
And Hannah could have been offended, but she chose to realize that this agent had no idea of the tragedy that went on in her life. So she, with a lot of love and a I'm little bit of me. tears, said, we came with our little boy, and he unexpectedly passed away, so we're bringing his car seat home. Well, of course, the agent, having a bigger expanded vision of what the situation was. Not that much expanded. She just loved her. She cried. Hannah cried. My son cried. They checked in the car seat. There was no extra charge. <laughs> but I think if we realize that as we're sitting— That's, that's good, Maven. Thank I you. really, really— wish she hadn't added the part in about there was no extra charge. Yeah. And, and you, you caught it by the way, but that first line that she says, um, quote, you know, she's talking to the audience about how this would have been perceived. She said suspicion that someone was getting away with something. It's almost like I thought she was going to say something else. Yeah. You know, Shakespeare said, for murder, though it have no tongue, will speak with most miraculous organ. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem strange that she's relating to a different facet of the story, but pretty much describes the actual tragic causing of the injuries and death of Derek Corden with the same, the same words could have been applied. The suspicion, getting away with something. Yes. Yeah. Okay, there's that one. Let's play uh, the February 4th, 2020 BYU devotional in light of what we know. Life sent me a hurricane of sorrow in December of 2016. We took our family on a trip of a lifetime, a week at Disney. Our oldest grandchild, Derek, was two and a half, and I was so excited, and he was so excited to discover the magic for the very first day, everything amazed him. He held my hand, and together we rode as, as many rides as we could, falling into bed each night, exhausted and happy. In the middle of the fourth night, little Derek stopped breathing, and his parents rushed him to the hospital. Hmm. I stayed with the family at the hotel and immediately went to my knees in prayer. With a measure of confidence, I asked Heavenly Father to bless little Derek, that he would feel good enough to join us that day for our planned activities. As I was praying, the Spirit gently but unmistakably impressed on my mind, little Derek has returned home to heaven. Wait, what? The answer was so far from my thoughts, and yet I knew it was true. Despite my Reeling shock, there was an instant peace from God which passeth all understanding. In my heart and in my mind, I knew then little Derek had passed away. Derek was in a children's hospital for three days on life support. I longed for my little Derek, but as I prayed, I continued to feel comfort and consolation from a loving Heavenly Father. In the middle of the fourth night, little Derek stopped breathing and his parents, plural, rushed him to the hospital. That's not what happened because she even acknowledges that she was at the hospital because she stayed behind with the family. Did, she said she at the hotel. Yeah, that's what I mean. Sorry. She stayed at the hotel. My bad. Let me correct it. She says she stayed behind at the hotel with the family 
while the parents, plural, rushed off to the hospital. This is how I know that they're on a big giant family vacation that includes the sister, includes at least mother. And again, I'm speaking beyond, but surely there are more people there than that, but they don't matter. We've got enough of the people there. It's like playing the game of Clue, right? There's there's all these folks that are sitting around and we know who's there and who's not and what should have happened and what didn't. And you start to figure out that certain pieces of information don't fit. Um, the fact that she says both parents drove the child to the hospital, as you point out, RFM, is telling. She was at the hotel. She stayed with the family. She would have sure as hell known that her son was six feet away from her and and uh, was there the whole time Hannah was at the hospital. Yes, of course she would. But the reason she said parents is because it would sound really weird if only the mom drove the kid to the hospital, which is what the cops thought. Yep. Uh, surely, let's see here, let me get to the next part. Surely she's aware they didn't rush, but instead took almost an hour to head there. Surely she finds it strange that her son and daughter-in-law didn't rush to grab their registered nurse sister across the hall. Um, and you, and somebody put in, why didn't Bonnie? Uh, she prayed that little Derek would feel good enough to rejoin them for family activities. These injuries were serious. This was blunt force trauma to the head. How could she be naive enough? And again, she, she very well may have been if certain members of the family isolated her away from what was going on. But the question still sits there. How could she not know that his injuries were serious, that she thought he could rejoin family activities the next day? Then why is she creating a narrative where the Holy Ghost helps her through her ignorance about to share with her that her grandson has died now knowing how serious this whole thing is. In other words, I don't believe in the Mormon Holy Ghost. And when I throw that idea completely out, Bonnie is indicating to her audience that she knew the seriousness of these injuries because I don't believe the Holy Ghost could have told her Jack squat. And so she's admitting that she knew that Derek was going to die before he actually did. Now, she may be adding that in as an embellished part of a narrative to create a faith-promoting story. But if she's taken at face value, she has a piece of information that's not available yet. Yeah, certainly. Excuse me. Certainly possible, Bill. Excuse me for a second. Let me clear. I do want to add to this that um, we're talking about the mom and the dad being present. We know that Sister Cordon and or Corden, excuse me, and I guess it would be her daughter, who's the registered nurse, Nolan's sister, are close by in some other room, maybe. I don't know. All I do know, and I'll say what I surmise, is that based upon what happened to this child, the screaming, the shaking, the abuse, this did not happen soundlessly. This caused a lot of noise with the child screaming and everything else that was going on during this time period. And certainly hotel rooms can have thick walls, though I'm not sure I've ever stayed in one like that. It's about midnight. Other people certainly may be asleep. But I do wonder if some people, other than the parents, were not alerted to something going on that was wrong simply by the noise that was going on in that room. Yeah. And as you point out, I mean, she's telling, she's selectively telling this story where she leaves out 
major important parts of information that would paint a very different story for her audience and then chooses to embellish her story with other ideas um, that don't seem to really have a place once you know the facts. Well, if I put myself in Bonnie Corden's shoes, I mean, she's very faithful. She's very devout. She's the president of the Young Women's Organization for crying out loud. What do you make of this? What do you do with this emotionally, psychologically, where this horrible, horrible thing has happened? Where was God in this? I can't find God anywhere in this. And so what it seems like Sister Corden is willing to do is to move heaven and earth and even to bend time and space mm. in order to get God somehow into the story so that she can make some sense of it herself. She says, the answer was so far from my thoughts, but then juxtapose that with the fact that this talk occurred February 4th of 2020. And surely by this point in time, unless she has been completely isolated away from the arrest, for instance, which you would think the parents know about, but maybe they don't. The charges of oh, aggravated like the child grandparents. The, What's the that? Bonnie would know about the arrest. You I'm said the parents. Yes, you would think Bonnie and her husband would know about the arrest and the charges, right? Of course they would. Sure. So the quote, the answer was so far from my thoughts that Derek is going to die. Meanwhile, she's telling that sentence in February 4th of 2020 at the moment where surely she grasped the full scope of her grandson's death. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't sit right. She's selectively telling the story as if this kid had some uh, spontaneous health event that was unaffected by anyone around them. And he just mysteriously died. When in reality, what we have is a, uh, a, a, a homicide case that hasn't been solved yet. Um, then it says her expressions of surprise and shock and lacking understanding till then, sorry, till when the Holy Ghost helps her is insane, right? She doesn't understand what's going on. She doesn't have a clue. And suddenly the Holy Ghost tells her that her grandchild is dead day, you know, a couple of days, day and a half at least before he actually dies. Right. And from this, I, I've got to take away from it because she's saying this in the same address, right? That she prays, she gets the message. Uh, he's already gone home to Heavenly Father, but he's on three days more in the hospital, which actually was not three days, at least according to this report. Regardless, he didn't die that night. I'm, I have to try and make sense of this. I have to believe that she believes. Well, first off, let me say, I believe that Derek never came around again. Lost consciousness, never to regain it. He never regained consciousness. Right. And whether he died or whether they had to withdraw life support or whatever it was. Because of the blunt force trauma. Right. That in her mind that he had already gone, or at least in God's mind when he's telling her this. I don't know. Yeah. We should blame this on God. God's the one who got it wrong. And again, there is some connection. I was telling you this off the air. Not that it's strong, but there is some connection to the idea of when consciousness enters and comes in, for instance, on the front end of life, we have third Nephi where Jesus is talking to the Nephites while Mary is one evening away from giving birth to him from her womb. And a lot of Mormons have uh, come up with a theology that until the baby's born and takes its first breath, its actual soul is not inside the body. Its spirit is not inside the body. So there is some theological room to kind of go there although it doesn't seem like it's a, a standard thing that's spelled out in Mormon practice. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and then uh, the last one, while she attributes it to the Holy Ghost, she had, again, I mentioned that she admits she knew Derek died almost 48 hours before he actually did. 
So don't allow her to sweep under the rug, giving credit to Mormonism's Holy Ghost. My hunch is if I'm right, either she embellished the story or she had a hunch that he was going to pass away. Yeah, one of the, the problems that some people have with this, and I may be one of those problems, is that even if there weren't all of these problematic aspects to Derek's death that we've covered tonight, it seems cynical to use the death of a child in order to maximize one's spiritual capital, which a person looking at Sister Corden could conclude that that's what she's doing. I'm not sure that that's what she's doing intentionally. I think she's trying to process this horrible traumatic event to her in some way. I think there's a lot of psychology going on that I'm not qualified to speak about. And um, so I'm not going to say what's going on. All I know is that she can't stop talking about this and there's probably a reason for it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's it for that one. Let's now play the hear him video and we'll wrap up with some final thoughts. Talked in his calls, little room and on his whiteboard was a that's, that's that Oliver. Said, that's, where we, that's where we left off. Yeah. Go, go back to the beginning. So I got on my knees and I said, Heavenly Father, I can't, I can't accept this assignment. It's just too hard. But the nudge and the prompting said, just go, just go. And we can play this through to the end. It's brief enough. We were on a family vacation and an unexpected situation happened where our grandson was uh, all of a sudden stopped breathing and we lost him. After spending three days in a children's hospital with him, our hearts were very tender. As we returned back to Salt Lake, I realized that I had an assignment at the primary children's hospital. And my heart was so tender and raw, I just knew I couldn't do it. So I got on my knees and I said, Heavenly Father, I can't, I can't accept this assignment. It's just too hard. But the nudge and the prompting said, just go, just go. So with tears in my eyes, I drove to the primary children's hospital. And I thought, I'm not going to be any good for anyone, but I'm here. And as I walked in, I just the sights and the sounds just opened up so much of a heartbreak for me. But I got the assignment to meet Oliver, and I walked in his little room, and on his whiteboard was a scripture that said, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not to thine own understanding. I don't know how it happened, but that scripture opened my vision, healed my heart in a way that I could never have done it. And I was so grateful that the Lord gave me this gift and if I can't even imagine if I hadn't have listened, but the gift and the um, joy that came into my heart as I realized the eternities was an immense um, blessing. And I was grateful that he had given me that hard thing to do. And so me going to that primary children's hospital was for no one else, but for me to feel the love of the Savior and through his grace feel healed, supported, and it was a, it was just a gift. So I'm grateful that we could hear him because it just opens up our minds of how much he loves us and understands our circumstances. See, the, the most snarky thing that I will say tonight would be here because it sounds like Sister Corden, this is under the hear him program or uh, 
I don't want to say propaganda, but the, the promotion. Advertising meme, yeah. yeah. The promotion. And she's going to go back to the story. She's going to go back to the well again and again and retell the story in different ways. But it almost sounds like what she's saying is, I hear him through child homicide. Yeah. In that video, she starts off, we were on a family vacation and an unexpected situation happened where our grandson, and she pauses for a brief moment, then she says the word was, and she pauses, almost like she, because again, it's a script. This is a professional video made by the church for, it's almost like she had a Freudian slip and was almost ready to tell us something, and she caught herself and got back on the script that was written out for her. She goes, we were on a family vacation, an unexpected situation happened where our grandson, pause, was, pause, uh, pause, all of a sudden stopped breathing, and we lost him. Again, she admits sort of grasping that she knew that while he wouldn't die for another 88, 48 hours, almost, that he was lost, right? We lost him. We, she knew immediately we lost him. Um, then the last one, she says that she, that she spent three days with him in a hospital, but records indicate the event took place around midnight on the night of the 8th, morning of the 9th that he arrived at the hospital on the early morning of December 9th, 2016, and was pronounced deceased on December 10th at 7.40 p.m. And while there was a error in the report that maybe led some credibility to that statement, the obituary shows us that the date of the 10th seems to be correct. Um, this video bothers me just as much as the last two. Any thoughts from you before I, we kind of finish off and go to some phone calls? Oh, I think I had one, but it's gone through, uh, gone from my head at this point. But Maven will supply my yes. lack. Um, well, it's actually a different uh, one of the comments, and I'm trying to find it, and maybe now I won't. But um, uh, but the comment was basically saying that it, with all these stories, she's changing the story to fit whatever principle she's trying to cover at the moment. And I thought that was a good point because they are all different. There's the, the misunderstanding one with the car seat, and then there's the, you know, the hear him where God is comforting her with her assignment in a child hospital after this, you know, and then, you know, the first one being, I guess, revelation. I don't know. Yeah. God is all over the situation. He is totally on the job. He just can't do anything to prevent the child from dying. Right. And by the way, on a, in a larger sense, I think this is helpful to illustrate how it is that a lot of miracle stories come about and come into existence taking a situation that is very secular, has nothing to do with God, could even be horrible and traumatic. And then in the retellings, inserting God into it. And you tell that enough and you've got another miracle story on your hand to help promote people's faith, which is what Sister Gordon is obviously using this to do on multiple occasions. Yeah. Let's take a few phone calls. We'll share some closing thoughts and we'll get, uh, get folks out of here for the night. But what a tragic story and one that sadly has been used by Bonnie and the LDS church to promote the gospel or the church, right? Seems so, so strange. Um, let me, uh, let me pull up the call screen. We've got three calls here in the bank. Uh, this looks like maybe Joe. Let's see if that comes on. Joe, are you there? Oh, give me a second, Joe. I apologize. Uh, don't just bear with me for just a moment. Let's see if this will. All right. You still there, Joe? Let's try, Oop, Joe? let's try that. Can you, Joe, are you there? 
Okay, give me 30 seconds, folks. Any other thoughts from you two is to buy me kind of a moment? Yeah, I'm just worried about Joe. Well, Joe, Joe's going to be back on. We're going to get him, no problem. If you take too long, I'm going to sing, don't cry, Joe. Let's try that. Joe, are you there? Oh, here we go. Don't One more time. Joe. Try it now, my friend. Yeah, I'm here. Oh, there it is. We got a winner. Go <laughs> ahead, my friend. What's your thoughts tonight? So, um, first of all, I kind of want to talk about both what happened with the court and with Bonnie using this story. I have custody of my kids because my ex-wife years ago abused my children with her um, new husband that she met on the internet seven weeks earlier. <laughs> but the courts don't really go after women. I mean, it took me six figures in attorney fees and two and a half years of court battles until we finally got transferred to a judge that said, what the hell is going on? And it put an end to it. But the entire time, the courts only focused on the stepfather abusing my kids, even though the, the abuse, the worst abuse was done by my ex-wife. And the crazy thing about that is years later, when she, she left the state, came back and started to reintegrate her, her life into my, my boys' lives again, um, she told my boys that she shared her faith-promoting experience of the court battle because the church helped her pay her attorney fees, which they're not supposed to do. And my boys, you know, are at the time are 13 and 14. When they were a lot younger, this happened to them, but they remember it, they were pissed because their mom is getting up in church, giving a talk in a sociopathic way about how God helped her fight that court battle, even though there's <clears throat> admissions, confessions, and everything. And so I am not surprised that because Hannah was the one who killed the kid, that the courts just don't care about women harming children. They, they, they go after men who harm children. And that's my experience. And, and I think a commenter said that, said that, uh, you know, the church turns people into basically narcissistic storytellers. And that is true. When you claim to be a full member of the church, even when you're in the wrong, you try to pull spiritual experience out of that and share it with others. I have never, until today, I have never talked about my court battle, but I'm doing it to prove a point. But I would never get up in church and say, oh, this happened. And I had some great miracles happen to help me protect my boys. But that's private. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, uh, Joe, for calling in. I just have to hasten to add as a CYA for us uh, to once again emphasize that we on Mormonism Live, Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real, are not making any specific allegations as to either parent having done this. Um, you're certainly welcome to your own opinions. I know Joe had said that uh, the mom killed her kid. I just want to make sure that it's clear that we are not saying that here on this show. Fair enough. Yeah, perfect. So next call here sounds like maybe the name is Willie. Uh, Willie, is that the name? Hello, caller. Uh, somebody on the, is there somebody on the line? Okay. If not, we'll, uh, we'll return that one to the queue and, uh, we'll give it another shot here in a moment. We've got Sorry, Matthew. Really. Matthew, are you there? Yes. Hello. Okay. My friend, go ahead. Yeah. Um, this just really made me think back to, uh, other church storytellers we have and 
you know, just our pretty much our penchant to just embellish all those sorts of things. And it's really made me think about how Mormonism really wants us to lock in step with our community, with everyone else emotionally, how there is one shared trauma of Jesus Christ and God who he gave up his only son for, for us. And we can be sad about that and throw all of our emotions to that experience. Or we'll talk about the traumas that may or may not have happened in the Book of Mormon and in the Bible. Um, but when we have our own private affairs, it really has to be more about the good of the church. When grandma dies, we have to think of it as a missionary opportunity. Look at all these non-members that are coming to support your grandma. Look at all these friends she had. Let's try to convert them. Let's make this an missionary experience. Um, and I really just think, I really just think that this shields people from really just going through their own trauma and processing it and starting to heal in whatever way that may be. And so as twisted as it is for someone to be sharing the story in this context, and it just really just makes all of our hearts break that this is going on, it really is part of the bigger picture of, you know, we're sad together, we're happy together, and whatever else, but we really, um, our individual experiences are minimized. And even seeking out some, even other media and things, uh, you know, family members won't watch shows with swear words or whatnot on it because, oh no, that's bad. But if a deacon gets to read the word ask in the Bible, that's a great day in Sunday school. And I just really think that um, members really need to be allowed to, to have differing emotions and have strong emotions and express themselves otherwise these stories we need to share or process come out in awful ways. And I just think it's a tragedy all around. I don't think it excuses what they do, but it's just so sad. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks, Matthew. Great point. Yeah. I mean, you see that in funerals, right? Wasn't it the unwritten order of things with Boyd K. Packer, where it was discussed that really you don't, you don't really hash out the person's life. You instead use that as an opportunity to share the gospel. You preach the gospel, and if someone at his funeral does something different and talks about him, he will rise up in the coffin and re rebuke them, I think was the language. Yeah. Although so, at his funeral, they did talk about him, and he remained stationary. Boyd K. Packer? Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. By all reports, I wasn't there. The, the leaders certainly have a different kind of funeral, don't they? In this case, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and maybe a few others. All right, we've got, uh, looks, sounds like maybe Stevie. And I'm hoping we'll get at least one woman calling in. Yeah, Stevie, are you on the line? Yeah, Okay. me, I'm here. Go ahead, my friend. Um, I'm a pathologist, and I've had some experience as an expert witness. And I just have a few thoughts. I listen to this as carefully as I can. I might have missed parts of it because of, just distractions in my house and stuff. But from what I can tell, I I don't see any real problems with the information you presented. I think you did a good job. And uh, one thought I have is about the um, the addendum to the case. Yes. The, um, or the, or the multiple addendum. Yes. That usually means there was some additional information, maybe another pathologist reviewed the autopsy findings or repeated the autopsy. And I can think of cases like this where the someone got an expert pathologist to say that uh, 
maybe the child had a coagulopathy, mm-hmm. like a bleeding disorder. Yeah, some kind of alternative theory or alternative means of the child dying. Yes. Yeah, so that could be what might have caused problems in getting the case appropriately prosecuted if there was some kind of second opinion. I mean, I've actually seen a case where it really looked like the child was beaten to death and and they got a consultation and the expert said he thought it was a uh, bleeding disorder. Right, but in situations like this, don't you usually see them going to trial and having the experts battle it out in front of a jury rather than the prosecutor just not continue with the case? I I, I just think it depends on uh, the situation. It does on a so, lot. But of yeah, things, typically, right? I mean, it, typically it sounds like. Uh, I mean, I can't really see. I I don't understand, you know, why this didn't go further. And what it did, I'm just speculating. It also doesn't explain the not calling 911, the driving to the hospital alone, not going across the hallway uh, to get your registered nurse sister. Um, it, it again, a collection of data is telling a much fuller story. Yeah, you can you can um, usually like your initial pathologist that does the report is going to do his best to be honest and get to the truth of the matter, but it's really not uncommon for people to be able to find someone, some expert to say what, whatever they want him to say. I will tell you that as an attorney, Um, you can always find some expert to say what you want them to say. Right. I mean, that's what I'm wondering. Maybe something like that happened and there were some addendums to the report after that information came through. Um, and a lot, a lot of those experts, a lot of those experts are referred to by prosecutors as defense whores, and they treat them accordingly, yeah. and they proceed right. with the case, and then eviscerate them on cross examination. But I did want to add, Stevie, uh, that uh, I and yeah. Bill, you know, I don't know if you know this, but uh, I saw my doctor yesterday, and I thought I'd take the opportunity to go ahead and pass along this four-page report to him for review. And he looked at it and he said, yeah, it looks like this kid got shaken and then thrown against something. Mm. I, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely what it sounds like. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't say that if I didn't think that they had a really good case for it. Yeah. Very good. Thank you. I appreciate that. Sounds like three different people in the yeah. medical field, two doctors, at least, and one pathologist. Are you a doctor? Yeah, I'm a pathologist. Okay. So that is a do- three doctors weighing in on this agreeing this looks like murder most foul is in the best it is. Thank you, Stevie. Sure. All right. And then we'll go back to Willie here and try and see if he's there. And if not, we'll just, we'll wrap up here. Can Um, we get a woman to call in? I would really like to hear a woman's perspective on this. Willie, are you there? Hello. Look at that. We got one. Willie's a woman. Lindsay. Lindsay. That's not what came up in the dictation. So, Go ahead, Lindsay. You're it on Mormonism Live. It didn't sound as clear. Yeah, no sweat. Okay, I just had a couple of thoughts. Please. Um, several people, you know, are like, well, maybe Bonnie didn't know. She probably just didn't know. But ultimately, she knew she didn't go to the hotel room. She knew that both parents didn't go to the hospital while she stayed back with the 11-month-old. So she's lying about something initially. It opens up. She's probably lying about a lot more than not, in my opinion. So just a thought. And then another just interesting thing, if any of the listeners want to do this or haven't yet, 
on the BYU devotional talk that she gave, if you go to Rita, a couple paragraphs above that, Bonnie talks about how her daughter-in-law, Hannah, was on a mission and having pizza every night for dinner that people were yes. feeding her. And so she, Hannah started praying. Yeah. Yes. Started praying to not have pizza and she'd pray for specific food, like Thai food and rice. And then that night they got to a dinner appointment and it was Thai food and rice. And this went on for like a week. And then somehow she segues into then Hannah's daughter. I mean, son passes away. So anyway, just an interesting thing to read and think, well, I'm glad Hannah got her dinner request answered, but her son died. Like, I know what you're talking about, Lindsay. Wasn't that horrible optics to go into a talk about her daughter, Hannah, on her mission, getting for a week, every day, her prayer answered as to what she would get from the members that evening. And God is answering her prayers. It's like God is uh, an ordering service. He's like, um, what do they call that? Uber, Uber Eats. Eats. Yeah. yeah, God is Uber Eats on this one. And every day for a week. And then finally mm -hmm. she decides, okay, well, I've had enough bothering or I'm, I'm done with this. And so I'll just take pizza now. I bothered God enough. Thanks, God. You answered every single prayer for what I wanted to eat. And then segues immediately into a story about Derek, Hannah's child. And the prayer that Bonnie gives, I believe it's the same one, right? Where she makes the prayer. It'll be able to join them the next day. Yeah. And God, and God says, sorry, yeah. you're out of luck. I mean, if you'd asked for something special for dinner, mm -hmm. I'd be right there for you. But you want your, your grandkid to join you and live. No, sorry. He's already gone before he's gone. Yeah. 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 And when was this prayer that she claimed she did as soon as she got into the room to stay with the other kids? Yeah. But really, she didn't because her son was in there. So anyway, interesting stuff, but I'm glad you guys are covering this and going over more details. And Thank I you, love Lindsay. your show. Thank you. Thank Have you, Lindsay. Thanks for calling in. All right. Well, I've got, uh, I got a picture of Derek up on the screen there. I, I do. The only thing I want to say is that, you know, the church has got this big advertising campaign with the hashtag hear him. And our only hope is that by shining a light on this, that this story may be, gets investigated and we can figure out what happened to this little boy. Um, rather than focusing on hashtag hear him with the savior, I'm, I'm hoping that this story is a chance for folks to be made aware of the facts that we've shared and that maybe this kid gets some sort of vindication or, or justice for the short life that he lived that should have gone a whole lot longer. Yeah. And that the hear him can now be here, Derek. Yeah. Let the him be Derek. Yeah. Any other thoughts from you, Maven, anything from you? And uh, otherwise, we'll close out. Maven's shaking her head no. So appreciate it, folks. Um, we'll just keep trying to, to bring you stories and try to dive deep into things. And RFM, I, your legal knowledge uh, was a huge help in this, uh, in this show. Uh, Dr. Peacock, I think, was a huge help in this show. Um, and we're, I, I don't use excited as in happy, but I am excited to see these reports that you've requested and to see what kind of new information they shine on, on the story. And when we get those one way or the other, if, if they, if they tell a story that um, vindicates the family, then we'll certainly talk about that just as much as if the data that comes out in those is more troubling. Um, so let us know when that happens, RFM. Otherwise folks, I hope you all have a great night and uh, we appreciate each of you. So. All right. Uh, not the not the happiest of stories, but we'll let folks go. Thank you, Bill. Thanks, everybody. Take See it you easy. next week.